0: Hey there, Stylish ThoughtBot podcast listener. We're back with another ThoughtBot swag sale. For the rest of the year, you can show your support for our podcast with shirts, pint glasses, and even limited edition socks. We have two new designs specifically for giant robots and bike shed t-shirts that have only before been available at conferences. For the production and shipping, we are proud to once again be partnering with social imprints who provide career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So help support your favorite podcasts, provide employment opportunities for at-risk populations, and get some nifty ThoughtBot swag. Head over to ThoughtBot.com podcasts to place your order and show your support. And hey, thanks.
1: I have two modes of eating. One is, like, I'm going to cook the most gourmet foodie meal ever, and the other is I'm annoyed that I have to stop what I was doing to eat right now, and ramen is what I eat when I'm in the second
2: mode. Okay. So right now you're in the gourmet mood, clearly. Clearly.
1: (laughs) I actually have a foodie ramen thing that
2: I make sometimes. Yeah, I've never really eaten a bunch of ramen in my life, and I have been perplexed by the recent trend I mean, I don't know, last 10 years of people being like, oh, yeah, I got some really good ramen because, like, to me, ramen is, like, that thing you ate in college where you got, like, 20 boxes for, like, $5. For
0: right. 10 cents, you've got a meal.
2: Right. <laughs> and so now, like, when people are like, oh, I have this great ramen, I'm like, what? That's not, that doesn't compute. I don't understand. Why would you want great ramen? <laughs> I'm going to wait for you to finish before we start my <laughs> How was your Rubyconf? It was good. I got to talk
1: to Aaron Patterson about fast attributes. Fast attributes? <laughs>
2: <laughs> We're going to talk about fast attributes soon, but I want to do a quick. So this was my first Rubyconf despite the fact that I'm on the program committee. I've been to like a bunch of um, Railsconfs. So this is my first Rubyconf, and it was a lot of fun. So it's... I knew it was smaller than Railsconf. It was a little shocking to me how much smaller? So I would say just judging, I don't know official numbers, but just by judging like the size of the keynote room, it seemed to be about a third the size. Like it was, there's generally like three banks of those chairs when you walk in the keynote room in at a RailsConf. But that was actually kind of nice because it was much more compact. So it just fit in this like one hallway of conference rooms Mm -hmm. and between talks, everybody came out into that one hallway and chatted with each other and figured out what they were going to go talk, go see next and then went to the next thing.
1: I like having the sponsor room separate, though, Mm. especially since I associate that with Tilda sponsoring, which means that there are couches I can go sit on.
2: I do. I think that was a several people commented on the lack of couches for or lack of seating in the hallway track area in general. The the seating there was very limited. uh, And then you kind of had to walk a good distance or you had to go upstairs to like the hotel part. If you wanted to sit, or, or,
1: or go into the lunch room but like who actually wants to sit in the lunchroom not during lunch <laughs> right
2: so that was that was a little bit of a bummer but I, I actually didn't do the hallway track I think I went to a talk all but maybe one or two slots of the entire conference that I was there for I missed Matz's fireside chat at the end because I had to go catch my mm-hmm. flight but I went to a lot more talks and I think part of that was because I had read all the proposals and wanted to see how some of those talks came off, right? It was like, like I found myself when I was looking at the schedule, then going to the CFP app and being like, what was the what was my feedback on this proposal? Oh, yeah, I want to see how they handled this. And I would go see those talks. But I saw a really a bunch of really good talks, a bunch of like super prepared speakers, like more so than I'd seen at previous big conferences that I've gone to like. I saw one speaker, Jason Charnes, deal with a fire alarm. So obviously other speakers speaking at that same time had to deal with it. His talk, the theme of it was saving Ruby from a zombie apocalypse. So then when the fire alarms went off, after he had just like laid out his entire theme, it kind of fit pretty well. He was just like, oh my God, it's happening. Um, <laughs> and you know, he dealt with that pretty well, I thought. Because you know, when a fire alarm goes off, everybody just kind of looks around like, well, what are we going to do about it? And he dealt with it well. And then I saw another talk by John, I think his last name is Feminella, and during his talk, his laptop almost caught fire. (laughs) The battery got so hot that his laptop overheated and shut down, and it took him a few minutes to figure out, like, we thought it was an AV glitch or something like that. And this is about halfway through his talk, and then he ultimately discovered, like, oh, my laptop has left scorch marks on the podium. (laughs) And so... He, to his credit, just said, I don't think it's safe for me to continue using my laptop. So he did the rest of his talk while looking at something on his phone, which I presume were like copies of his slides or something like that, that he had on his phone. And he just did the rest of his talk that way, which I thought was like astounding. I probably would have soldiered on and been like, well, hopefully it won't start a fire. I'm just going to (laughs) start up again. right?" (laughs) Yeah. Maybe I would have unplugged it in an effort to like if the battery wasn't actively charging, it wouldn't have had a problem. But I think he made the right call. <laughs> I would have made the wrong call safety wise. Sure, but he did. A, I, I thought he handled that like just as well as anybody could have possibly handled that. And it's made me add another nightmare scenario to the list of things that can go wrong when I'm preparing for a talk. Which is I will now have any. I will now have my slides on somebody else's computer that I know will be at the talk with their computer. <laughs> So, I can just plug in their computer and go, um, yeah, putting them on GitHub is also a good strategy, mm-hmm, yep, I've always had them on Dropbox, so i they're always available, but like if I had to swap out computers, it was like during the talk or something, it would be right. Maybe that's not an eventuality I should prepare for, and I should just hope that uh, having seen it once in my life, I'll Ho- never see it Hope again. that your computer never catches fire, <laughs> yes, <laughs> did you catch anything from the Ruby Kaigi track? I don't think I went to any there were four talks, I think, or maybe three three. Um, I, I, I just that. love a that there's a that there was
1: an entire track that
2: was just another conference. <laughs> yeah,
1: but there was this one uh, esoteric, obfuscated artistic programming in Ruby, which was just the most ridiculous ways that this person had written Ruby, uh, such as a way to print like "Hello RubyConf" using no uh, alphanumeric characters at all,
2: <laughs>
1: and then another one that prints the same thing using no punctuation at all. But I think my favorite was he had a Quine, uh, Quine being a program which prints out its own source code. Uh, but this one was especially interesting because it had a radiation symbol in the source code and uh, was called the radiation hardened Quine in that you can delete any single character from it and it will still work. It'll print out the original unmodified source code. Any <laughs> any sing- yeah, And you can remove any single character anywhere in the program and it'll still work. <laughs>
2: that is impressive. I had not heard about that. That was a really cool talk. That was Yusuke Endo's talk.
1: Yes. Uh, and I would assume that you can catch the video of that talk from Ruby Kygi. I
2: Also, assume that's online. the RubyConf videos are also starting to appear, so likely by the time this goes out. Most, oh, yeah, by this goes get.
1: out, they definitely will be.
2: I feel like it could have used fewer tracks. Fewer tracks or fewer concurrent talks? Fewer concurrent talks, I mean. Okay. Hmm.
1: I think it could have done fine with three tracks. Like, there was a big discrepancy in the number of uh, people at some of the various talks. Uh, so I think number one, the talks that were most popular could have done with slightly larger rooms, which if we were fitting, you know, the same number of people into three quarters of the number of, of rooms, they would have to be slightly bigger. But also just like the talks were really long and almost, no, <laughs> almost nobody used like I think 30 minutes is the max that a, a non keynote slot should be. And even 25 minutes is fine, mm-hmm. especially if you encourage people not to take Q&A.
2: That was a distinct pattern this year was uh, I think I was in three talks that took Q&A. Yeah. Which we've had a long discussion about this on uh, the bike shed that we recorded live from RailsConf. I mean, I'm assuming
1: that's why nobody took... (laughs)
2: Yeah, everybody listens uh, to our (laughs) podcast.
1: Yeah, it was was all all us, obviously.
2: I think it's just a trend to not do it. And now, having had that conversation, I paid so much more attention to the types of questions that were being asked... uh, yeah. I mean, I still think if, if speakers want to take Q&A, I think they should. But I, having paid more attention to it, I kind of welcome the trend of not doing it and also shortening the talk slots by 10 minutes or making it more clear that, like, we're going to give you 40 minutes. If you only take 30, that's fine, right? That right. kind of thing. Because there were a lot of speakers who were like, I only have 30 minutes. And they were kind of stressed out about that. And I was like, don't. <laughs> like <laughs> It's fine.
1: Yeah. It'll be okay. I think as
2: long as you use at
1: least half of your allotted speaking time... <laughs> <laughs> I it's
2: guess if, if everybody only used half that would probably be a start to pick up sure harder. But I, I more
1: mean like it's fine if you come in under time But I feel like probably probably somewhere between half to two-thirds of your time is where it like okay Maybe it's a little unprofessional to have the uh, to be so short.
2: Yeah. Yeah, perhaps I also give major props to uh, the folks who did travel from Japan and give a talk at an English-speaking conference That's a long way to travel and yeah. giving a talk in your second, or maybe not even second, third, fourth, I don't know, language. Something that's not your, your first language, certainly. I give them major props for that. I always feel bad when people like
1: feel the need to apologize for their English, either in the hallway or especially if they're doing it in their talk. But it's just like, no, your English is way better than our Japanese.
2: Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't have any trouble understanding anybody or anything like that that was that was giving a talk I just I was just super impressed by like I can't imagine layering that on top of giving a conference talk, you know So yeah,
1: I stayed for the weekend after I didn't leave until uh, Monday morning Mm-hmm, and we did some stuff in town on Saturday. There was a, a group of us went to go do a uh, swamp tour But the logistics of transporting 14 people out to a you know kind of in the middle of nowhere for a swamp tour wasn't really considered until the last second <laughs> So we ended up getting a stretch limo, <laughs> which per- it was actually you took a
2: stretch limo to the swamp. So it was the only
1: thing we could find that could accommodate that many people. And considering our only other option was calling like six lifts, it was actually cost effective, <laughs> given that those were basically our only two options. But yeah, so we showed up at a swamp boat tour in the middle of nowhere in a stretch limo. Did you have, which the, was stretch, did you
2: have the stretch limo wait for you? No, no. <laughs> you it called another stretch limo. limo. <laughs> it, it was a yeah,
1: it was a different limo that came and picked us up. Uh but that was that was a lot of fun. And then Sunday Tess and I rented a car and went north to Baton Rouge to go visit my family, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Cuz I have not seen my niece and nephew since our wedding and they are like actual people size now, which blows my mind.
2: <laughs> cool. Did you have any favorite talks other than the uh esoteric one?
1: I remember really liking both Sandy's keynote and Andy's keynote. Mm-hmm. All the keynotes actually I thought were really good.
2: Yeah, I thought I thought all the keynotes were good and Andy's I was particularly proud of because that was something that we elevated from the general proposal pool into a keynote And I thought it went really well. So that was cool. I really enjoyed uh, Ashley's talk Ashley Ellis Pierce's talk on get driven refactoring I watched that and I immediately was like there's a lot of practical advice in here that yes I know and but also there's some that I learned and I can't wait till the video comes out and I can send it around to People that I know would benefit from it, which is almost everybody. So that was a really cool, practical talk to see. I think almost all the talks that you had talked about, like there being some sparsely attended talks, almost all the ones I went to were at least well enough attended that I wouldn't have felt bad if I were the speaker, right, so I felt pretty good about that that it, the only exception I would say to that is when you have to talk in the keynote room, when you have to give a talk in the big room, yeah, that always sucks no matter how many people are there it's never gonna feel it's it. never gonna, it's going to feel empty, but luckily. <laughs> The lighting was also a little weird this year and very bright, and so it was hard to see from the stage. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you just don't know how many people are out there.
1: <laughs> so I think my favorite talk was Eileen Uchtel's talk on yep. the unbearable vulnerability of open source.
2: That was good. I was at that Both one Both because
1: well. it spoke to me and also because it was just a really, really well put together
2: talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. So RubyConf was awesome. I'm looking forward to RailsConf again. See my peeps. yeah i go to enough of these now that i have i have people that i look forward to seeing at these things and it's 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 a good time conference friends are the best (laughs) and everybody's everybody's really it's a really welcoming community like there were multiple people from the stage encouraging people like when you're talking to somebody leave a space so somebody else can come and join the conversation like those are the types of things that people at these kinds of conferences talk about is making sure we're including as many people as we can and uh that was great yeah and also thanks to the people who uh came up and said hello and that they enjoy the show and Several people, at least three people told me they're working their way all the way back from episode one, which I was just like, wow, (laughs) (laughs) they'll see how far we've come at least. (laughs) Hopefully, I don't know. I don't have the I don't have the heart to go back and listen to old episodes.
1: I mean, you don't even have to, though, right? That was back when we had so little faith in ourselves that we felt the need to come up with a very structured discussion topic beforehand. Yeah, that's true. And and we're worried that we couldn't stray too far from our predefined topics.
2: And I remember thinking, like, when we we started out every two weeks, and I remember thinking, like, when the chance to do it weekly came up, it was like, I don't know, do we have enough to talk about every week? Like, (laughs) we manage. Yeah, I mean no we probably don't but we figure it out (laughs) last uh, so let's transition last time we recorded you were talking about I think it was the last time we recorded you were talking about finding a way to make like attribute allocation more efficient by using a Rust library and you were like yeah. I think it's going to save like five uh, to ten percent. I think we'll see a five to ten percent speed up. So it's been a couple weeks. It's been a few weeks since you. Oh, since have you we said not that. recorded since I benchmarked it? No. So why don't you tell the people?
1: Oh, I thought the last time we recorded was after I benchmarked it. Was like, no, no, this is
2: actually okay. So tell the people. I want you to tell the people. Yeah, in okay. case they don't follow you on Twitter, how much sure. y- you did a little better than five to ten percent? Yeah, it makes Active Record twice as fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Uh,
1: yeah, which ironically I think will result in a roughly five to ten percent increase in actual throughput on a real-world app If you're benchmarking, you know from the point of
2: view of the entire request hmm So what scenarios what scenarios are we talking about here? Like what's your benchmark? So
1: yeah, so the twice as fast so it, it, it scales uh, not quite linearly But close enough to linearly that we will call it linearly with the number of attributes that you are accessing on your model uh, so there's one big difference in the implementation between of this new version and the Ruby version is that these objects were allocated lazily in the Ruby version. And in the Rust version, I'm just allocating them all right away. Now now typecasting still happens lazily, but these objects all get created right away. So it's actually if you were just if you're if you were benchmarking like post.all.2a, which is a really, really, really terrible benchmark that doesn't even remotely represent real world usage, but it is a thing that people write for bench you know if they want to do a micro benchmark you'll actually find that your code is the code is slightly slower, uh, and the same is true if you access only exactly one field on your model. The place where the performance becomes the same is when you're accessing two fields on your model, and so with that knowledge, I chose not to then go make this lazy like the Ruby version is because nobody's loading these models from the database and then accessing none of the data. If you're accessing exactly one field, you're almost certainly using Pluck,
2: or you should be. If you're not already, or you should be. I see a lot of people that use Map because they don't know about Pluck or things like. But these are things we can correct. Sure.
1: I, I mean, either way, the people who are caring enough about performance to be using this gem—it's yes. not, you know, there's no discussion of adding it to the default gem file yet. Although there may be in the future. Anyway, the people who would be using it right now, who care enough about performance to use this gem, you know, are definitely using Pluck instead of Map if they're only accessing the one field. But yeah, so the placework was twice as fast. This was on a macro benchmark. It's a reasonable benchmark for Active Record, and it's still a micro benchmark in the context of Rails as a whole. Mm-hmm. But basically, uh, I was doing post dot all dot map ampersand colon attributes, so calling the attributes method, which returns a hash with all of the fields on the model. That so that how many, many? How many
2: fields would that be? In
1: this so case. in this case, it was thirteen. Okay. I had ten string fields, the ID, and the timestamps. Uh, and this was benchmarked on Post against Postgres, I think.
2: Okay. And so, why is this so much faster?
1: So, part of it's just, I have an optimized compiler now. Some of this code just gets optimized better. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest part of it, though, is that we have all of these objects that do not need to be garbage collected. So, these attribute objects, we create one per field of your active record model per active record base subclass instance. And they, they have no reason to be garbage collected by Ruby. You'd never get a strong reference to them. They always live exactly as long as the attribute set object that they came out of, which lives exactly as long as the active record base object that owns that, which probably also lives exactly as long as the relation that it came out of. But I'm not even beginning to go there because, of course, people do hold strong references to active record base objects. So basically, the goal here is to is to just have this thing be outside of Ruby as much as possible. There's also, you know, minor gains because like method calls are going through Ruby's plumbing less. This does not use inheritance at all. It uses an enum, so it's a it's a much smaller set of, you know, as opposed to like dispatch to arbitrary function pointers. Now this is it's a four case conditional which the CPU can can pipeline much more easily. Although I was talking to Aaron uh, about this and he strongly disagreed that just allocating this myself is ever going to be faster than allocating Ruby object, which I kind of agree with you know there's lots of asterisks basically on both sides of this argument Mm -hmm. but you made an interesting point which i never i need to go i need to go look if this number actually was correct this is right now this is just a thing that sounds like it could be true and would make a lot of sense if it was but i haven't verified it but if your object has a small number of instance variables those instance variables get stored in line in the data structure that ruby uses to represent an object once you have a, uh, beyond a certain number of instance variables, then Ruby has to go allocate that, the ha- backing hash map storage for all of your instance variables. And so this would make a lot of sense if that number was four when it has to go to allocate that hash map, which is the number of instance variables that this thing has when it's first initialized. It eventually has five uh, and six in some subclasses, but, but starts with four and eventually gets five. But it, that would explain why specifically the last line of initialize is the one that shows up in stack prof, which is when we assign the fourth instance variable for this object Right.
2: That's when you're paying the price for this allocation basically
1: Yeah, I mean you're still paying the price like you know the big price of course we're paying here is, is GC pressure Right, and then it's, it is also like they all have to be allocated steps So in my case I actually can allocate it much faster because I know oh I need 12 of these things I and so I allocate exactly enough space for exactly 12 of them and then stick them into that space Whereas Ruby then has to allocate each of these independently
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now I have to be careful here because there are some individual heap allocations that happen, and this is sort of where I'm work- where I'm working right now. But basically, if I'm accidentally uh, cloning some of these things in places where it's unnecessary, which right now happens a lot. Basically, re- if this happens in a loop, continuously allocating and freeing the same chunk of memory over and over and over again. Uh, it was bad enough that we had one test in Active Records test suite that took 30 seconds to run, which <laughs> normally takes, you know, an unperceivable amount of time. Okay. So I'm having to be careful with that. And I've gotten rid of a lot of those cases. Basically, some of the tricky bits come from making sure that I'm properly dealing with when memory is managed by Ruby versus when it's managed by me. And the problem is there are certain use patterns in the ruby code that basically means these objects have to be created in ruby and like have to exist as ruby objects with memory managed by ruby because like for example i have a, I have a map function so it takes a block which returns an attribute object and then i return an, a, a new attribute set with the result of calling that block for each, each attribute in the set now while i could just get rid of that function and and change all of the ruby code to you know Use a pattern that doesn't require this i'm trying to not you know completely restructure active record in service of this optional thing that lives outside of active record but anyway so ju- due to the nature of that what then has to happen is right i'm running some ruby code that ruby code has to return something which means it has to then be an object that is managed by ruby because that memory has to be stored somewhere and something has to be responsible for freeing it. but when that happens then I I don't have a way to tell Ruby, like, actually, this is my memory now. Don't manage it. And even if I did, I need to copy this into this pre-allocated block that I have elsewhere. So basically, in any cases where those patterns crop up, it literally necessitates just I have to, you know, do a heap allocation, copy the data out of that heap allocation into either the stack or some other place on the heap, and then free that heap allocation. Uh, If I do that too much, then all of my gains are lost. So one of the things I'm looking at is in a few places uh, that this really is necessary, basically dirty checking and YAML deserialization are the two big ones. Switching to using reference counted pointers, which means I I, I no longer get that nice benefit of I'm just pre-allocating this big block of memory because each of these reference counted pointers have to live separately. But it does save me the copy and free. Um, but i'm i'm working on figuring out how to do that without introducing the reference counting overhead in places where it 's not needed,
2: which is tricky
1: basically it 's like ninety five percent done and so now i'm i 'm finishing
2: the other ninety five percent so how long before you know you 're going to be like looking for somebody to try this on an app? Probably a
1: week oh i 'm trying to get this working on shopify 's code base mm-hmm and Shopify is exposing all of the all of the little paths where I'm like, yeah, this can just use the old Ruby objects because it's fine because this is a cold path. And it's like, nope, this is actually a super hot path in Shopify. <laughs> so I'm I'm having to go through and just kind of get all these little edge cases to make sure everything actually is faster in all the places it should be. Uh, and then I'm going to, if our test suite is green, I'm going to throw it on 1% of our production and see what happens.
2: All right. I'd like to see that. Do you have good enough, like, instrumentation to tell what the impact is?
1: Yes. Cool. Yeah, I'll know within five minutes. Even before, I'll know basically immediately. Did this affect request time? Did this affect throughput? Did this cause an increase in exceptions? Did this segfault things? Cool. Did this segfault things is the one that I really, really care about <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had Aaron go through the code with me at RubyConf because I was at a point where I'm like, I'm 90% sure this is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm making some assumptions here that I'd like a person who understands MRI better than I do to validate. And he did. So, like, I'm pretty sure it's fine. Aaron's pretty sure it's fine. The Rails test suite passes and consistently runs without segfaulting. So that, I mean, all of these are good signs. But basically, once I throw it into Shopify for you know a very brief test, if I see no seg faults, uh, I will probably make the repo public and release a like zero point one point zero point beta one. Cool. I do still have to solve some issues around like actual distribution. You know, that was the thing we talked about uh, the last time I spoke about this was. Actually, in that case, it wasn't distribution, it was just getting it building in the first place, which uh, the authors of every, of every library that I mentioned in that episode reached out to me afterwards, which I really appreciate.
2: <laughs>
1: of course, when this does ship, I cannot require people to have a Rust compiler. So I need to figure out how are we going to pre-compile this, and especially how are we going to make sure that that pre-compilation is automated, since anybody on the Rails team who wants to release a new version should be able to do so, and that would require like, a Windows machine. So is this gonna live in the Rails namespace, like Rails slash fastributes? Yeah, the repo is currently under the Rails org. It's private right now. Ah. So some concern about having it be public when it's not quite ready.
2: I went looking for it the other day, so that explains it. I looked in s I looked I looked in, <laughs> I looked yep. in Rails. Uh, but no, it'll live on it'll live under the Rails org. And it'll at least start out its its day as one of those like fast blank type things that you can add optionally to your thing and then see how it goes from there. Yep.
1: And then if it goes for a full release cycle and there are no major issues with it, I'll probably push to add it to the default gem file.
2: Oh, that reminds me after the last time we talked, we talked about like various things like this that you can add to your gem file to speed things up. And um, we talked about fast boot. Is that what it's called? BootSnap. BootSnap. Um, we talked about BootSnap, which is Rails 5.2 Beta 1 is out, and that's BootSnap as part of the default gem file that gets generated if you start a new app. But right. I added it to the five one app that I'm working on now, and it's so fast. It's so nice. I hadn't used it, it before, is. like I mentioned on the show. Like I haven't used it. It's so much faster. Like I, I would miss Spring when I went to run like rake tasks and things like that. I'd be like, oh, you know, remember Spring? And then I'd be like, no, Derek, remember how many times you shot yourself in the foot with Spring? Don't do yeah. that. And now I don't miss it at all because it's so it's so much faster. And this so is
1: I would like to also reiterate, just knowing you know some of the internals of both of these gems, like they are still both. Cache invalidation problems, but the kind of stuff BootSnap snap is doing is stuff that is like way easier to cache and properly invalidate than uh,
2: spring <laughs> right So yeah, if you are running does it work is it a rails five only thing or does it work with older versions? I don't know check it out if you're running a rails app, and you don't have it in your gem file yet Definitely uh, check it out because
1: I'm pretty awesome. sure it works with five zero because I think we released it when when Shopify itself was still in five oh, right? Uh, I actually don't know if there's any reason it wouldn't work with earlier versions of Rails. It's more it requires a very recent version of Ruby because it's dealing with the uh, byte. It's basically caching the compiled
2: bytecode. I mean, it's not even that new. It says, at least as far as the gem spec, the required Ruby version is 2.0.0 or greater. That is definitely wrong. Okay, well, then somebody should do something about that. (laughs) At least according to the gem spec.
1: It might just not do the instruction sequence caching if, if it's on too old to of a version of Ruby. Right. I'm not sure. But yeah, there's a section in the readme that says exactly what it does. Basically, like makes require faster by pre-scanning for where certain things that are definitely gonna be required live, and then basically caches the compiled bytecode. And like caching the compiled bytecode is that's what I'm saying, like that's a much easier cache invalidation problem, because it's literally, it has this file changed?
2: Yeah, I'm looking through some of the code, and there's definitely some conditional stuff that is enabled if you have a recent enough Ruby version.
1: Yeah, it probably does not help your app that much if you're not on, I think, Ruby 2.3 was when uh, instruction sequence load Iseq was added.
2: Yeah, there's some stuff in here for compile cache ISEC and compile cache YAML Yeah, that is dependent on the version. So anyway, cool. So this will be another thing we can decorate our gem files with and go faster. Yeah. Sweet. This one, this one actually will affect runtime, though. This will not make your app uh, load faster. My favorite pull requests are test suite speed ups. So there may be it will definitely right. have
1: a much larger effect on your test suite runtime than it will on your server throughput.
2: Right, because your test suite runtime is more Act dominated sure. by Active Record because your unit tests, well, quote unquote unit tests, often use Active Record for creating records yeah. and things like that.
1: Well, and then even even in your integration tests a larger portion of your flame graph is still going to be active record because like your integration tests, even if you're using Capybara, are still doing just less stuff than they would be in production.
2: I always get so excited when I find like, oh, I can speed up the test like right before we were I was a couple minutes late coming down for this because I realized by looking at some logs during that I was I was like trying to debug a test failure and I was like, I don't know, let me tail a test log here and see what's going on. And I was like, oh, it's inserting a lot of audit trail records. And I looked and like at some point in the past, this project got audited, like the gem audited, okay. put in its thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's auditing all like all of these things. And I looked for the classes that audit trail. It's only enabled on like two classes, but they happen to be like the two classes that we create the most instances of in mm-hmm. the test suite. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. And then I ran it and it only it shaved 20 seconds off of like a four and a half minute test suite. So, you know, not nothing, I mean, that's a
1: but- decent win.
2: I was hoping for more, but then I went back and looked at the classes, and it's also only auditing on update. So, like, mostly we're creating records and then uh, creating them yeah. in the state we want and not updating them. But but still, 20 seconds, nothing to shake a stick at. So yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll take you the said it was seconds. a four and a half minute test suite, right? Yep. I mean,
1: that's seven and a half percent. That's yep.
2: I had dreams of it being, like, 45 seconds or something like that, but oh well. Sure. I like to make wild guesses like that when I'm like, ooh, we're not doing this yet. <laughs> yeah Um, anyway should we wrap up oh before we wrap up so we have an ongoing swag sale did you know about that I did not. Oh, well, I'm going to tell you about it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, last year when we went to RailsConf, we made available the Bike Shed t-shirts, right? And they were only available if you were going to the conference because we hand delivered them. This year, we're making those available for purchase. If you go to ThoughtBot.com slash podcasts, there'll be a link there to be able to, to do your shopping. And it's not only Bike Shed stuff. There's Giant Robot stuff. There's ThoughtBot socks. There's some stuff like that. So in the past, people have said that they've enjoyed the show if you'd like a way to help support us continuing to do that. You can go there and buy some cool stuff and represent the bike shed. Don't buy that giant robot stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Screw those guys. (laughs) No, buy the giant robot stuff. It's cool. We have pint glasses, all sorts of stuff. So uh, check that out and support the show and we'll really appreciate it. Wait, do we have bike shed pint glasses? No, we have thoughtbot pint glasses. Oh, okay. I was going to say, there better not be bike shed swag that I don't have. Oh, it was a limited edition bundle. Okay, hang on. So the giant robot shirt is actually really cool. I mean, the bike shed shirt is cool, too. But the giant robot shirt, I was picturing it just being like a ThoughtBot shirt. And we have the ThoughtBot shirt, which is a nice shirt. It's a comfortable shirt. It's just like the regular Ralph logo in black. But the giant robot smashing into other giant robot shirt is pretty cool. There's two robots fighting. It's, cool. it's a good-looking shirt. And get got some good-looking socks. So, yeah. I recognize this UI.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> I wonder who you guys are using to handle
2: the sale of, the, of this swag. It just emails Tom and Tom, uh, Tom handles it all. <laughs> all right. Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm slash 134. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore Bikeshed, email us at hosts at Bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website.
1: Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.
2: This
0: podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington DC, let's build something great together.